Welcome to the podcast, Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony, your host. So there are dragon cultures and there are demon cultures. Bear with me because I'm making this up as I go along. So dragons are very physical creatures. They spew fire. They fly around. You kill them with a sword to the belly or throat. Whereas demons are... I don't want to say supernatural because dragons are also sort of supernatural, but they are metaphysical entities. They are more made of like soul matter. They're the antithesis of angels, and they inhabit other people's bodies and possess them. And so dragons give rise to warrior cultures. They have heroes against them like Beowulf or Siegfried, about whom sagas are told. Demons, however, cannot be faced with swords or shields. You need prayer and faith. And so the heroes of those stories are priests or saints or monks or ascetics. They're not people who rely on their own sort of physical strength, their own combat readiness. They're people who literally have none of that. They have no inherent power other than to call on the power of God in order to drive out the demon. So it's borrowed power that is accessed through faith and prayer. So very different cultures. Um, The one gives rise to heroic sagas. The other gives rise to hagiographies. So the first kinds of societies are dominated by a warrior class that monopolizes the kinds of stories that are told within it. The second kind certainly features a strong clerical element. The church is usually very prominent, um, or at the very least, controls the kinds of stories that are told within that society. In Byzantium, we're very much dealing with the second kind of society, though, as you will hear, there were also a bunch of dragons. There is some overlap, but let me continue with the contrast. So... Dragons are normally very few. They're rare and solitary, and they don't answer to anybody. They're very sort of independently powerful, devious creatures, very, very selfish. They're up to their own devices. They live for a very long period of time, and they usually generate you know, one major opponent, a hero, that takes them down. Demons, by contrast, are <laughs> legion. And while they are evil, they're also they're doing the bidding of their master. They, it's not that they have very individualized personalities. They're all just aspects or facets of Satan or the devil for whom they work. So dragons you find in a relatively anarchic or untamed ecology. They're lone wolves or loose cannons, whereas demons exist within a very structured metaphysical order um, that normally has, you know, corresponding armies of light and armies of darkness or however you describe it. Their enemies are also not lone warriors, but 
people who are integrated within a particular social group, a church or you know monastic institutions or saints. Though some saints are sort of wandering cowboy type heroes, though they usually settle down at the end uh, too. All right, as I said, these are two very broad structural categories. They obviously overlap in practice quite a bit. Uh, if you want to look for heroic societies that feature dragons, you, you know where to go. Though the book that we will be talking about today will point you in some new directions that you might not have known up about. Um, and if you're looking for demons, just pick up any Byzantine hagiographical text, more or less. Unless it's hero is a church father, they tended to not get their hands dirty with demons. Okay, so a while ago, my guest today um, asked me if I would translate a, a sort of selection of Byzantine texts about dragons for an anthology called The Penguin Book of Dragons. I said, sure, I didn't expect to find a whole lot of dragons um, in Byzantium. It's you know, not that kind of culture, but upon further investigation, I actually found quite a few. Um, and some of them were quite interesting and disrupted the sort of structural distinction that I drew just moments earlier. Uh, in particular, I found one dragon that had holed up in the treasury of the imperial palace in Constantinople, and the saint had to come and sort of drag it out. Um, so that's kind of the opposite. That kind of merges the two worlds in an odd kind of way. The sort of very bureaucratic palace style of Constantinopolitan culture with dragons. My guest is Scott Bruce, who is a professor of history at Fordham University in New York, and he is a medievalist, like Western medievalist, works on like Peter the Venerable and other you know, Latin writers, um, and he has recently uh, taken on um, these projects with Penguin, resulting in the Penguin Book of the Undead and the Penguin Book of Hell. Uh, and <laughs> which are anthologies of texts from all kinds of cultures, mostly pre-modern, but across the world, um, that focus on those topics. The book that I'm holding right here is the Penguin Book of Dragons, which came out now almost two years ago. And there, I have a chapter in there on Byzantine dragons, which is called um, Draconic Demons and Ogres, uh, Dragons in Byzantium, because... Uh, uh, anyway, Byzantine dragons kind of mix categories in an interesting way. But you will find in that book dragons from all over the world. So I wanted to thank Scott for that invitation. Um, also for coming onto the podcast to talk about the book and about dragons in general. Uh, so without any further delay, here's my conversation with Scott Bruce. Hello, Scott. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. This is a fun topic. I'm excited to do this. Um, so before we talk about dragons, tell us a little bit about the series of penguin books where the penguin book of dragons belongs. So there's some very interesting titles there. Uh, there's a book of the penguin book of hell, of the undead, of witches and so forth. You've edited a number of those. So what's the goal of the series? Well, I think it began, the idea of the series began um, as um, a way to present um, Western literature uh, in an anthologized form. So instead of instead of publishing full long works uh, in individual Penguin Classics volumes, one of the editors there decided it would be an interesting idea to 
put together an anthology of sources. And these were, they began with the Penguin Book of Witches, which I think came out in 2014 and was a runaway bestseller. It came out in October. It captured the English speaking world's interest in witches. And it was really just a collection of primary source texts related to the Salem witch trials. Um, but it got a lot of media attention. So when I approached Penguin about a completely different topic in 2015 or so, 2014, 2015, um, they saw a model that they thought would be successful. That is a fall anthology that treated a fall theme. And um, I, I, at the time, was spending a lot of time with a 12th century collection of miracles written by Peter the Venerable, abbot of Cluny that I work on. And I thought it was, it was it's an eclectic collection of miracles about the Virgin Mary, and there's some weird ghost stories and other other things that take place in it. And I had my 10 minutes to make a pitch to Penguin Classics. It was a brand I'd always wanted to work with. And I so I got the ear of an editor and I explained to him what this what my text was and why it was fascinating. And his response, paraphrased, was nobody wants to read that. <laughs> um, there's very little way you can sell a translation of a 12th century miracle collection to the general public but he did hear me say ghost stories so he said tell me about ghost stories i'm interested in ghost stories and i said well i can tell you everything there is about them you know <laughs> bluffing and uh <laughs> but i but i'd recently read jean-claude schmidt's monograph on ghosts in the middle ages and i knew i had read Pliny's letter on the haunted house in athens and and whatnot. And so I made the case to him. I said, look at I can uh, I'd, I'd love to put together an anthology for you of, of stories about about ghosts from the ancient period up to let's say Shakespeare. Because I always knew Hamlet's ghost too. And um and I was just about to, it was this was actually in the fall of 2014. And I was just about to leave for a fellowship in Cambridge and where I had a project underway that I was gonna work on. And um, but I said to him, look at I can deliver the manuscript to you in a year. You don't know me. You have to place your trust in me. Give me a contract and I'll give it to you in a year. And he said, okay, I'll take my chance. So I, I spent a lot of my time in Cambridge on that fellowship, you know, in the shadow or with the ghost of MR James looking over my shoulder um, and, uh, and uh, completed this manuscript and got it to him on time. And um, it, it, it morphed into the Penguin Book of the Undead because they thought that Undead would sell better because everyone in America was thinking about Undead at the time because of various programs and whatnot. Mm. And, um, and it worked out well. And uh, it worked out well in the sense that it, was, it, it sold well. And I think if you're an editor, one of the things you like is a reliable author. And so <laughs> having met a deadline, they thought, yes. oh, this guy can produce. Yes. And so they approached me to do a second one. And uh, they were interested in images of heaven in the pre-modern period or in the, the Western tradition. And I said, I thought that would be frightfully boring. Boring. Uh, but images of hell were much more diverse and nuanced and whatnot. And so they said, okay, run with that. And so we did the Penguin Book of Hell, which came out in um, uh, 2018. And that received a ton of attention. Um, as it turns out, Americans are very interested in hell <laughs> and the concept of hell. But this one, they gave me the liberty to go all the way up to the modern period. So the final texts in the hell book actually deal with um, uh, the, the Holocaust. They deal with um, solitary confinement as a kind of punishment, a hellish punishment. They deal with mm -hmm. Guantanamo Bay. Um, and so it, it had a it has a it had a, a modern relevance that resonated with reviewers, and it was reviewed in a lot of major organs. There was a major article in the New Yorker about it, for instance, um, that was that was really really lovely. 
Um, and at that point, then the, my handlers at Penguin said, you have carte blanche. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> what do you want to do next? And I said dragons um, for reasons that will become apparent when I talk a bit about my past. <laughs> right, right. Um, so that was uh, that was great. And the dragons book also has been has been, uh, as you can imagine, very popular. People are people are interested in. Um, you know, people are interested in entertainment dragons. They're interested in fantasy dragons, and we're inundated with them. I, I think that if it, there's more dragons now in our imagination than there ever were in the past, right. um, we have an infinite number of dragons. It seems good, bad, and otherwise. Um, but that, but people are very interested in the history of them. They want to know stories from the past about them, and then that's what this book hopes to deliver: uh, a retrospective of dragons that might be familiar and also completely unfamiliar to people who are brought up on modern fantasy dragons. So you're exactly right about editors that just being reliably on time is so important to them. It, it sometimes outweighs other qualities that you might have. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, so fascinating that you mentioned Peter the Venerable. I was actually reading him this morning. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, yes. Why, you might ask? Uh -huh. Because he's the first person I have found who articulates this sort of Western view about Byzantium that you protected us from the Arabs and the Muslims. In other words, that Constantinople is this kind of fortress that blocks Arab advances into Europe from that direction. And mm. th that's a very standard modern view, a kind of instrumental view of you know, what, what is Byzantine civilization good for? You know, And obviously it's good by Western standards because it did that. Um, and obviously he changed mm. his tune dramatically after the Second Crusade. But... <laughs> yes. um, yeah, there is this one letter where he talks about and that was so fascinating. Anyway, um, okay. So I, uh, actually, this brings me to the next question, which is: tell us a little bit about your academic background, uh, so mm -hmm. that you know uh, readers can have a sense of you know what a medieval training is good for. Putting <laughs> writing books about <laughs> dragons and such. Well, um, uh, I'm so I'm primarily a historian of medieval Christianity with a special interest in medieval monasticism. Um, I bear no resemblance to the monks I study, except for my tonsure, <laughs> which was not my choice. And the, uh, um, but um, but I'm fascinated by the by the decisions that pre-modern monks made to live their lives and the way they modeled their lives on um, figures from the Bible, on these uh, angelic creatures that they purported to be able to see. Um, and uh, I'm fascinated by the rhythms and routines of their lives, and especially by the things that they read. And um, and as it turns out, it was a lovely kind of serendipity. I came to the Middle Ages as a, as a rather bored college student um, who was finishing a psychology degree and had ambitions of either becoming an ambulance driver or a firefighter, because uh, my mother was a nurse and she respected people like that. But in my downtime, I, of course, was just a fantasy nerd um, of the kind that was raised in the 70s and in, in, in my case in Canada. Um, so I grew up reading uh, comic books with, you know, sci-fi and uh, fantasy comic books. I grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons in its very first iteration. Um, I read Tolkien every year <laughs> over and over, all the works of Tolkien on an annual basis. And I was, you know, and and the best possible Sunday afternoon was when you turned on your television and there was a Godzilla movie or a Ray Harryhausen fantasy. <laughs> I think my very first significant dragon crush was the dragon in the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, <laughs> the one that is chained up in the lair of the necromancer and then ends up 
fighting the Cyclops. Heartbreaking moment for me as a child because I loved them both so much. <laughs> Didn't want to see them fight. <laughs> so, so in a sense, I came to college with this, you know, this very rich imagination that included dragons um, from all sorts of media, from film, from comics, from novels. And um, and then when I when I got into the study of monks and started reading their stuff, I thought, oh, my gosh, these guys love all this stuff, too. <laughs> right. For different reasons. There's yes. an, you know, there's a kind of eschatological anxiety that comes. <laughs> they weren't as happy with their dragons as I am. But the uh, but nonetheless, I found motifs that were um, that were familiar to me. And I didn't begin working on those right away. I um, I actually, you know, my dissertation, which became my first book, was on rationales for silence in monastic communities why monks uh why it was important for monks to remain as silent as possible and then the use the development and use at the monastery of Pluny of a of a system of sign language the hand signs and then the inherent contradiction in communicating in one register and not in another and how do they resolve that because they were well aware of the contradiction um and that led to other projects related to Cluniac geography. But but all of it was kind of within the realm of what I would call the monastic imagination, how monks thought about the world, how they imagined their world, how they um, created um, ways to communicate about the world. Um, and so when, when the time came to work on these penguin volumes, um, it seemed to me that the Middle Ages, the Western Middle Ages at least, was a, was a known quantity for each of these books. There was an ample amount of material that I could draw from. The question was, which were the best stories? What were the stories that communicated what I wanted? But also, which ones were funnest? To, you know, the funnest. <laughs> which ones were the most fun to read? Yeah. Um, and that's a big part of what goes into the selection of the contents of these anthologies. I'm actually reminded of a cartoon, and I think it was Dragon Magazine back in the 80s. <laughs> Goodness, man. <laughs> yes. Wormy. Uh, where is it? Like... Is it worm? <laughs> Uh, no, so I don't, I don't know any of the details. I just remember the image it stuck in my mind, which was like, there's a table and there's like a wizard, a barbarian and an elf, and they're okay. playing a tabletop game that's called lawyers and accountants. Oh, okay. Got it. <laughs> that's right. Yes, indeed. And no, I thought you were, there was a regular comic strip in, um, uh, in dragon magazine called wormy about a, about a dragon, a pool, a dragon who played pool, um, and his various minions and whatnot. And it was, it was wonderful. Um, uh, but and, you don't hear too many people talk about Dragon Magazine. Yeah, no, no, no. And <laughs> so I got excited. <laughs> no, I was reminded of it last year um, when I was reading one of David Graeber's book. Uh, you know, the anthropologist who died recently. I think this was his book on bureaucracy. And he had this comparison. He said, well, like modern people like to imagine a fantasy world, which is like all dragons and undead and chaotic and there's no structure. And in the medieval period, all of these monks are talking about order and the rationality of the universe and, you know, the music of the spheres and Pythagorean theories. And <laughs> Yes. Like, oh, Trying to I... find the order behind their chaos. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. So let's turn to dragons now. And yep. this, uh, the, the Penguin Book of Dragons is an anthology of texts from all over the world and lots of different periods. So you have... I want to talk a little bit about the principal selections that you use mm -hmm. sure. because you have chapters from... Dragons on classical antiquity in the Middle Ages, early Christianity, um, but also a little bit from early modern Europe and the East, mm. from the Caliphate to China. So, uh, as you said, most of the materials like pre sixteen hundred. Was there a lot more that you considered including? Did you have to make painful choices here, or did you have a, a set of guidelines that you know resulted in this selection being made? Is is, is it the most important, and in what sense? So there's partly 
what it comes down to is, I mean, there's two or three different factors here when it comes to creating an anthology. One is simply the availability of stories. So are stories available in English translation? Um, and if not, do I know the languages well enough to translate them? And I've done a lot of the Latin translating because that's the language I work with most. And some of my students have taken part in that too. We've now kind of got a little cooperative group where they do translations for me and they get publications in these, in these volumes. Um, or I outsource, as I as I did, thanks to your generosity, the Byzantine dragons to you for that wonderful chapter, and um, the old English dragons also got their own uh, treatment by another scholar. Um, so the um, so partly it's about availability. Can we get it? Can we get the stuff together? I had originally, when I envisioned the Penguin Book of Dragons, I envisioned it having a final chapter that was excerpts from modern fantasy literature. But that costs an awful lot of money uh, <laughs> to buy those licenses and whatnot. And so, um, so you know, we do this. I do this on a budget <laughs> and um, I get a little bit of institutional support, but um, but I have to be careful about what I choose. So there's there's partly partly just the issues of accessibility. Um, and there's dangers that come with that, actually, because, you know, it's uh, an anthologizer like myself is would be very eager, for instance, to go to a 19th century translation of a source for which I don't know the original language, mm. um, which is which is in the public domain, rather than say paying for the rights to publish uh, a modern translation of the same work. But then you're very much at the whim of Victorian translation strategies, um, yeah. you know, omissions of sensitive or potentially obscene materials uh, that we have no you know scruples about now um so so there are dangers there too you've got to be very careful and so i i have a, a net a wide net i cast a wide net of to experts um in these various subfields and talk to them about it um but the other um the other aspect of this uh for principles of selection is simply is it a good story i mean is it a story you want to sit down and read um, you know, and and many of these stories I envision, I, I imagine each of these snippets like as a reading before bedtime, let's say, or reading in the, you know, just before you're about to go and make dinner or, you know, reading over coffee in the morning. So like I, I imagine these 10 or 15 precious minutes that people have when they choose to read something. And um, and then what's the takeaway? Um, so, for instance, I was really hoping to include some kind of major story from Chinese history, for instance on dragons, only to find in all of my reading that dragons are much more emblematic in Chinese culture than they are um, features of narrative. So there's no mm -hmm. Chinese Beowulf, for instance, fighting a dragon, right. um, but dragons are everywhere, you know, they're, <laughs> and, but I was so unsure about this I, that I, I um, had long communication with two scholars of early modern China, who I know fairly well, and said, really, really, have we, have we done everything? <laughs> this is have we have we turned over every stone because I don't want to miss it. Um, as it turns out, there just really isn't. Um, in the same way there are for other cultures like Edo Japan and other places like that. So, um, but but they they have to you know. And then the other thing is that by the time like many of these stories are ancient in their origin, and then they are repeated, and they they it's fascinating to see the way they change or they they um you know they aggregate as they get more information or more detail or whatnot but by the time we get to the early modern period when the authority of antiquity is still very strong we see a lot of repetition and so i try to go back to some of the earliest versions of the stories um because uh, they you know have the you know the kind of kernel that imaginative kernel of the 
the story at its beginning and why it may have developed or why it may have originated in the way it did. But I'm also interested in tracing some stories over time if they show significant change. Um, uh, again, all dependent on availability. Right. And there's quite a diversity here in the end, right? Even when you filter out all of you know, that and you focus on the stories that have a strong narrative component mm -hmm. um, or that are, you know, so ecological, we'll talk about some of those oh, in right. a moment. Uh, you do end up with quite a diversity of ways in which dragons are imagined. Um, and before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about the now canonical image of a dragon. If you tell someone, think of a dragon, they will almost certainly think of something that is from the cover of some Dungeons and Dragons manual. Like right. that's so, where yeah. it comes from, right? Yeah. So re reptilian, winged, and fire breathing, I think might be the three classic attributes of a dragon uh, in the modern imagination. Yeah. So and how, did that are, get, and you, how did that get formed? So I, I blame, I blame Tolkien. <laughs> and, uh, and there's a reason for this. Um, Tolkien in, in in a fascinating uh, so so the, the there's no denying the popularity of the Hobbit in modern literature and modern culture, it's it's everywhere. Even before the Peter Jackson movies, it was everywhere. Oh sure. Um and and Smog is a you know the the character of Smog is is you know even before Benedict Cumberbatch voiced him in the movies, uh, was you know a kind of haunting figure for anybody who read those books, you know, the subtle voice and yet the immense power that lies behind it. And we all spent time, actually, I'm sure every child who grew up in the 60s and 70s knew Tolkien's painting of the of Smog mm -hmm. sitting on his treasure with that little kind of awkward Bilbo bowing before him. Um, but the, um, but it's not, so, so partly this just comes down to Tolkien filtering components of the um, early Scandinavian literature he knew so well um, into this character of Smog. But, and normally what we would say is that Beowulf is clearly the archetype here. Um, we know that Tolkien read Beowulf closely. He translated the whole thing. Um, and the dragon in Beowulf bears some remarkable resemblances to Smog. Um, he he hoards wealth. He gets upset when a single piece of wealth is stolen. He And in getting upset, he takes wing and he sets fire to everything and so there's there's some great similarities there so the beowulf the beowulf dragon is really uh an important part of this archetype but the beowulf dragon never speaks this is a big difference i think and in and in fact in the whole tradition of dragons the the ones who speak are much more interesting <laughs> from a narrative point of view than yeah. the ones that are purely monsters or animals and do not speak and here, Tolkien was drawing on another aspect of Scandinavian literature, um, the story of, um, of Fafnir. The and so, mm -hmm, yep, yeah, exactly. And the, um, so Fafnir was a giant who was changed into a dragon, but not a winged fire-breathing dragon. He is much more like the the ancient Greek and Roman dragons where he's, a, he's serpentine. He does have a little arm, some kind of little appendages because he has an armpit. Um but he's and he's and he doesn't spew fire, but he um, exudes venom, and um, and so it's he's a very different kind of creature. But because he had previously been, I'm presuming it's because he had previously been a biped speaking creature, mm. he is still endowed with the ability to speak. So that when Fafnir sets the trap for him, and you know hides in a pit and then stabs him as he slithers over the pit, um, the almost the entire story is given over to their dialogue as. Fafnir lays dying 
And I think it's the Fafnir story that gave Tolkien the idea that dragons are much more interesting when they talk, <laughs> um, because of the you know the mixture whether it's whether they're threatening or whether they're wh whatever they're doing, telling their own history, saying their own names, they're they they become real vivid characters when you give them a voice. And this is something that George R. R. Martin has studiously avoided in mm. his game of in his Song of Fire and Ice. Um, which we know is Game of Thrones from HBO. It, and those dragons, I find, I mean, your listeners may have a different opinion of this, are, in, I think, are incredibly two-dimensional. And I'm not even, like, they are interesting in that they are dragons. Um, and recognizable as such because they're winged <laughs> and reptilian and fire-breathing. But as characters, right. I thought the potential there was completely lost to have actually three speaking personalities that could have interacted very in a fascinating way with the other characters in that incredibly rich and complicated story. Um, yeah. So, uh, so those dragons to me, the, the Martin dragons fade in my imagination because they're almost like, they're like the dire wolves in the story. They don't really have any person. They're, they're animal companions that don't have a personality. They just happen yeah. to be big. Um, and um, whereas smog is, you know, and like, <laughs> you know, we all know who smog is. Yes, I can't remember the names of the dragons in the, in the Martin stories, and that's telling. <laughs> the, yeah, the dragon speech is also not like human speech. I mean, it, dragons are almost in a way that Western medieval Europeans imagined the Byzantines. <laughs> Very subtle, sophisticated, persuasive, crafty, but treacherous and deceitful, and you can't trust them. Yes. I'd, it, I've been dealing with these images for the past few weeks, so bear with them anyway. <laughs> well, um, this is where one of the one of the greatest dragons of modern literature, in my mind, that is that it, it in a story that does not involve it involves very little fighting, <laughs> but is um uh, it, because it's a war it's a sparring of words is the mm -hmm. dragon that appears in Ursula Le Guin's Wizard of Earthsea, where the mm -hmm. wizard of the where the the you know the titular wizard uh, Ged um seeks out a dragon and converses with it and then has power over it because he knows its ancient name um that the, the, that those books are so that whole trilogy is just so subtle and so yeah. wonderful and yet so overlooked now you know when you think school of wizardry now you think harry potter of yeah. course uh, a series that is devoid of interesting dragons again <laughs> pretty much um at least in my mind uh none of the dragons in those stories had ever really captured my attention yeah, I, some, I sometimes wonder why Ursula Le Guin is so overlooked. I, I'd heard some interviews of, of hers a few years ago. It's a fascinating woman. I mean, mm -hmm. really immersed in like anthropological. And beautiful thought. prose. I mean, I I, yeah. I just finished reading the second one, The Tombs of Ottawa, to my 11 year old. Um, and I, you know, and as you know from having kids, it's, you know, you can choose to play children's music or read children's books, and then you got to suffer with through that <laughs> yes. with them. Or you can choose excellent books and excellent music to play, to expose them to, and then you get to enjoy it. You know, I've yeah. I've continued reading long after she's fallen asleep because the prose is beautiful. <laughs> Le Guin can write. I didn't. Oh, yeah. I don't think the same of Rowling. <laughs> um, so tell us now about some alternative conceptions of dragons uh, in the global tradition that's represented mm -hmm. in the book here. So there's some that deviate significantly from. The modern fantasy script uh, or and the tradition that you outlined um here so i mean in fact some wouldn't even be recognized as dragons by yes um, most yes. modern readers but that's what they're called in the text um, indeed indeed so tell well, us about some of that variety 
Well, one of my one of my very favorites is um, is a story from early modern Japan called My Lord Bag of Rice. Um, the story is from the Edo period, so between the, I don't know, the 15th and the 17th century, or maybe a little later than that. And um, but I uh, I accessed it through a translation that was made in the 19th late 19th century by the daughter of a missionary. Um, and um, so we're getting a kind of a paraphrase of the original story, I suspect. Mm. But this story is, like, it confounds every notion of what a dragon is to me. Okay, the dragon is reptilian, except it's serpentine and aquatic. It has nothing to do with fire. And the hero, the human hero who encounters it, it finds it lying across a bridge uh, uh, that goes over a lake beside a mountain. You know, it's a picturesque Japanese scene. And um, he doesn't want to wake it, so he steps over it. But his daring, <laughs> his daring is such that the dragon begins to talk to him. And here, immediately, we have a much better story because we have a dragon who's talking. And the dragon presents itself not as an adversary, but as a victim who is in need of a human ally. Because his family, who lives under the lake with him, has one by one been picked off and eaten by an even worse monster, a gigantic centipede that lives on the mountain. And so the human hero agrees that he will help the dragon against the centipede and is invited down to the dragon's watery palace where he's treated to all of the luxuries of an aristocratic household. And in a scene that Disney could recreate, he's served by fishes and things like this. It's like a, a little mermaid aspect to this. It's really kind of quaint. And But what is so, what is so different about the story is that the dragon really does just behave as a, as a, as a frightened aristocrat who cannot stave off the, the, the predations of this really terrible monster which is an ins which is a giant insect mm. um and it's actually really a, a, a gripping story because the monster only comes at night its eyes glow in the dark it's so large it wraps around the, around the mountain and it, it's it's gradual descent from the mountain as the hero fires his arrows at it is is really really quite compelling um and uh and then the the the, the story is called my lord bag of rice because the the reward that the hero reaps at the end is a, a series of of really of special quasi magical items that includes a bag of never ending rice every time the bad rice bag is emptied it fills with rice again <laughs> i think my <laughs> so wife has one of those death. and so um and and he and he gets you know the human hero gets the thanks and so so in a complete inversion of the of the western dragon tale the dragon is not defeated mm. the dragon is rescued yeah. um, by the human hero um, and the dragon is an incredibly sympathetic character um, wow. love to see somebody do something with this story in an artistic medium because uh, it's it's really wonderful and one of the Byzantine dragons I found was essentially like a human ogre. Well, that story is incredible. And I was going to let you talk about that for a second. <laughs> you can no, do no, more I, justice with than me. <laughs> uh, it, it's from one of the late Byzantine romances. And it's basically a rescue the maiden story from the castle or, you know, of the evil mm. dragon. But it turns out that the dragon is basically just a, like a really abusive boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's strung up by her naked by her hair, if yes, I recall correctly. Yes. And and um again that dragon talks you know and his and his and his you know his character comes across even you know more so and he's awful <laughs> yes i mean i'll i'll encourage our audience to actually go read the book and you know it's it's a, it's a long passage um i will note that in modern greek um 
especially in the press, uh, I don't know that this is actually something that, you know, normal people actually use, but a dragon was a technical term for like a serial rapist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I remember you. So when we were first talking, you, you may remember that after I asked you to see if you would be so kind as to contribute to this volume, we had coffee in Columbus because I was there giving a talk. And you told me this story about um, hearing about a dragon on TV as a child. Yes. Yeah, on the news. <laughs> um, yes. And I thought, that's got it. We got to get that in the book. That's fan It's a fantastic story. <laughs> there, yes. I remember that the, the news was saying there's this dragon stalking this neighborhood. And my ears perked up. And, what? <laughs> like, this isn't a, it's not April 1st. What's going on? Like, it was straight face. And it, it took me a while to figure out what. Anyway, I think I was young enough. I didn't even know what a serial rapist was. But... <laughs> Just as yes, yeah. We don't. We don't have that same euphemism. And we we don't talk about people as being dragons. I don't think in no, 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 the same way. It doesn't mean the same thing in our culture. Um, so some of the other texts that we found are, for lack of a better term, sort of pseudo scientific. They're descriptions, mm -hmm. systematic descriptions of a dragon's habitat diet behavior strengths weaknesses and so forth like the again to, to go back to dungeons and dragons like what you would find in a monster manual like it's a description there, right? <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> and there's no sense that we're writing fiction here right like and often these um descriptions occur in the context of other scientific questions that are being treated like about lightning or about volcanoes or whatever yep Exactly. And so yeah. how does this happen? How do serious medieval scientific minds write so much about dragons as if they were writing about you know elephants and giraffes or whatever that they, creatures they might have seen? Like how are what is the scientific thought that's processing this kind of information? So partly here, what we're seeing, um it's almost as though as as empirical knowledge of the world advances or expands um there's and and as that as that expansion takes place no dragons are found <laughs> um we begin to see dragons being pushed to the periphery of mm -hmm. of the geographical imagination and so people who are interested in writing about them or still think that they're important and meaningful go back into the past the past remains a country where dragons are alive and well, because the geographical boundaries of, let's say, the Roman world <laughs> were much smaller. So dragons, you could, you know, dragons are said to live in India, they're said to live in Ethiopia, you know, and of course, with the Scandinavian culture on the northern brim of the world. So um, we see these early modern authors, it's this, the create it's it's almost like this inverse effect, right? The, the more geographical knowledge they get, the more they turn to ancient authorities to try and somehow fill in what they can't find through empirical evidence. And there's also, I think, too, just this early modern craze of compilation and uh, anthologizing that takes place. And so we've got these incredible polymaths who, in thinking about dragons, scour all these texts from antiquity and then bring them all together in these fascinating, sometimes overwhelmingly dense compendia. It, it reminds me sometimes, even though they predated, it reminds me of like reading Melville's Moby Dick and the, the, the encyclopedic chapters of Moby Dick, where it's just endless facts about whales. Um, we the, These texts have that character too. 
Um, but when we actually come down to like, it's, it's amazing because there are these kind of, uh, you know, these, these grand um, episodes from the ancient world where monstrous serpents, hundreds of feet long are fought by Roman troops or however they want to describe them. And then they say, and then we've seen dragons in our own time. And there was a farmer who found a dragon that was six feet long, <laughs> you know, and they, their, their world, the yeah. dragons of their world are very small and inconsequential. And yet they seem to really want to, you know, maintain that authority against all empirical evidence, maintain the authority of ancient knowledge. Um, and, uh, and then though, but those compendia serve a fantastic purpose for pre-modern scholars because, um, well, I mean, I shouldn't really say that. I mean, any serious pre-modern scholar could read the Greek and Latin sources and it wouldn't matter. Um, but they feed some kind of need that's out there for knowledge of the world and, um, and the place of dragons in it. Now, there were very few, if actually, frankly, I don't think there were any compendia of natural history or lore dedicated to dragons. They always were a subset, right. two great subsets. You know, they were a subset in, um, in, in um, Top Cell's um, compendium about snakes. And then they were also a subset of subterranean fauna in Athanasius Kircher's work on you know, the lands underneath our own, you know, subterranean worlds. So they were never the, you know, they were always just one little corner of some broader inquiry, but nonetheless, um, uh, fascinating and, uh, and rich. So, um, uh, but, but then thereafter, I mean, the early modern period is a pretty, otherwise a pretty weak period <laughs> for dragon stories. We get a lot of dragon recycling. We don't get much new, right. uh, much that's new. Um, but one of my very favorite excerpts in the anthology are the is something I entitled "The Last American Dragons." Uh, there are not many dragon traditions in North America, um, certainly in in colonized North America. And but at the end of the 19th century, there was a brief flurry of dragon sightings in the American Southwest and in California. At that mm. point, still largely unexplored, uh, thoroughly explored, and. Um, Again, almost always the case of, um, uh, you know, cattlemen or or loggers who encounter some kind of strange creature in the wild. Um, usually they kill it with their guns and there are reports of, you know, where the body lies, but nobody's ever seen it <laughs> and whatnot. But those stories rapidly fade away at the turn by the turn of the century. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned the need to mm -hmm. not necessarily to believe, but to retain that category as kind of operational in your scheme of the world, uh, mm -hmm. because you know you can hang a lot of things on it, um, and not just ancient authorities, but you know dragons signify different important things that people want to talk yeah. about. So let's turn to the question of what dragons mean. And I'm, I, <laughs> there was a while when I wrestled with uh, you know Tolkien's uh, famous essay on Beowulf, right where. Mm. He's pushing against the allegorization of everything that's not, you know, strictly speaking, sort of scientific natural. And because that's a tendency, uh, right, is to treat everything like that as a kind of metaphor or an allegory. And he insisted on the, you know, the, the logic of the story requires that the dragon be physical and real. And when you yeah. hit him, it bleeds, right? Um, and so he he didn't much like these kind of allegorical readings. Um, so what is the 
what what was at stake in this for him? I mean, why did he want dragons to be so physically present and real in the in, in that kind of imagined sense? Mm -hmm. um, and you know, what else has the tradition done with them? What what else does drag do dragons mean? Well, I'll, I'll start with the big dragon studies, if there's such thing, has one big thesis <laughs> at the moment. Is there moment. a journal of dragon studies? No, there's not. It's right. not. But if you want to start one, I'll do it with you. <laughs> <laughs> the um, No, the dragon, the big dragon thesis at the moment is was has been written by an anthropologist whose name is David Jones, who almost 20 years ago wrote a book called An Instinct for Dragons. And in An Instinct for Dragons, he argues that dragons exist in our imagination because they are an amalgam of the three major predators that we understood to be dangerous when we were less advanced than we are now. So that they combine all the elements of the eagle, the leopard, and the snake. And so they are, they are this amalgam of they're kind of literally like a chimera without the goat i guess huh. and the uh so you know large large predator cat large predator bird large well predator reptile dangerous predator reptile um and that these three things all taken together um in exist in some form in any in every culture and they are all hostile and um as you can imagine this book was it was very popular when it came out it, you know people talked about it um uh, it doesn't make an awful lot of sense unless all you read are dragon stories that are negative. <laughs> it takes no account of world cultural stories where dragons are not negative <laughs> or are not adversarial. <laughs> um, but it's a useful piece to talk with. And it's a good it's a good little book. That, it's a little book, which is, it has its advantages, too. It's only about mm -hmm. 150 pages. And it's a, and it's it's good to teach with because students can readily grasp the thesis and also refute it um, and um, in meaningful ways. So that's our big thesis about um, uh, about what dragons mean. They are they are, you know, from our in our primitive human brain, they uh, cause fear and disconcertment. Uh, dis they're disconcerting to us because disconcerting to us. Forgive me because um, because they're this amalgam of other of these predators that preyed upon us presumably when we are when we were primitive. Um, I really even. I don't see the eagle part of it still is kind of confounding to me, but anyway, I'll, I'll let, him, let him go with that. Um, for, you know, in certain medieval stories, it is deeply important that the dragon not be allegorical. I mean, Beowulf dies at the end of the Beowulf story and he's not killed by allegory. <laughs> he's killed by fire. <laughs> right. So, so there's the heroic part of that narrative of his death and all of the talking he does as he dies. That's that's really quite important, I think, and that might be what Tolkien was talking about. Um, but there's also ways that that story has been unpacked where the dragon is also a cultural symbol. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, and when you think about the society of the Beowulf poem, and you read Seamus Heaney's beautiful translation, or any of the mm -hmm. other ones that are out there now, uh, or you find Tolkien's too, which has now been published, um, uh, find that the Beowulf poem is is replete with with material goods it's replete with rings and armor and all this stuff um and the way that that warrior society worked was through the redistribution of stuff you know you fight people you conquer them and your warlord says here's your stuff <laughs> here's the stuff you get for for helping me and for being my you know being in my crew um 
no surprise that the kings in those stories are called ring givers. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what is the worst possible thing that can happen in a society like that is that stuff gets hoarded. It does not circulate because, you know, relationships and loyalty and, and all of these things only happen in that society among the warriors due to the circulation of wealth. So the reason in some ways the Beowulf dragon is monstrous is because he dries up that circulation and prevents these societies from functioning. So that's that's a very instrumental read on how a dragon works, but it, it actually works within the logic of that society in the same way the Grendel monster works within the logic of that society. You know, this is society that is trying to do away with, um, you know, the blood feud, the kind of, you know, impulsive <laughs> murder response to violence against yourself by instituting laws and what does grendel represent but a ref you know <laughs> laws mean nothing to him and he murders at will he's he's the weird shadow of the of the the society as it fears itself to be you know so so there are ways in which we can unpack those monsters um i teach a class on monsters uh at fordham and um we we do this with the beowulf poem and with other stories too um and then I, you know, then we unpack modern monster stories and say, what is, what's at the root of what's, you know, what does, what do monsters tell us about the society that creates them? Um, whether those monsters are serial killers hell bent on murdering sexually active teens or, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, any other possible thing, you know, so there's, so we, we do an active decoding of monsters and they are, they can be useful in that way, but they, 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 they become, you know, they're, they're, they're not nearly as interesting from a narrative point of view, unless they have, you know, character and action and, and you know, and there's physical consequences from dealing with them. They have to be dangerous, you know. Um, and this is an old, you know, this is very old. I mean, we go back, but the oldest story we have in the volume is from the, uh, the Rig Veda, the uh, Sanskrit hymns that go back to, you know, 1500 BCE. And this story, this tells the story of the hero uh, Indra fighting the serpent monster um, Vratra. I'm not quite sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. And but it's all about the the monsters, the dragons. Um, the dragon lives in a mountain and and doesn't allow the water to come down off the mountain. And so the hero has to go and fight the creature and slay it to get the water flowing again. And you know it's a it's a wonderful story for a for a, a location that has issues with water scarcity and and these kind of things presumably, um, and it's one way to, it's one way to read it, um, but it enshrines many other things too qualities of heroism and you know and it's a good story and all these different yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, mm -hmm. I was reminded as you were speaking of the the theory that like in the past twenty years. Mm -hmm. that i think zombies represent what like democrats fear about the republican base <laughs> and but and vampires represent what republicans fear about you know secret democratic cabal that you know like you <laughs> suck your blood and are sort of vaguely homosexual oh yeah sure yeah no that the, the politicizing of the monster i mean goes back i i um uh the, one of the films that terrified me when I was young was the 1970s remake of the invasion of the body snatchers. And, mm. uh, but I've since overcome that and went back and watched the original 1950s film and read the novel. And, uh, you know, as your listeners probably know, this is about these weird plant monsters that come down from outer space. And when you fall asleep, they create a replica of you that has no feeling and no emotion. And then you die and the replica takes your place. 
And of course, this was this is such a classic Red Scare movie that this is you know this is yeah. this is what communism will do to us. It'll take away our individuality and make us all these kind of you know muted plant creatures <laughs> yeah. that walk around, you know. And um, um, so yes, these the, these things can all be actively political. I'd never heard the zombie vampire. Oh uh, no, yes, <laughs> I like that. Some people develop it very specifically, like it it. Like there's a vampire phase whenever there's a democratic administration. There's a zombie phase in the media. Anyway, whatever. But no, you're so we're, right. We're in the year that we're still in the year of the vampire now. <laughs> yeah. In the, in the text, you're right. So when you have a sophisticated text that has monsters, and for many modern scholars, this is a bit of a paradox because you know scholars you know, feel a bit uncomfortable about monster stories, which is why Tolkien was writing that essay. There's a kind of squeamishness mm -hmm. about these monsters. Mm -hmm. um, but when you have a sophisticated text that has something like that, you have to understand what the function uh, of that being is in the story. And mm -hmm. in some respects, it's similar to the gods in Homer, um, mm -hmm. especially in the Iliad, where in the Iliad, the gods are like have these exaggerated human traits, uh, you know, their jealousies and their plotting and the, all of you know, their insecurities. And yet they're immortal and kind of very, very powerful. And it, they're meant as a contrast with the mortals who are down on the plane of, you know, Ilion dying and making these hard choices that that are grim and 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 um, depressing. And the gods are up there laughing and having you know fun time, like a sitcom up on Olympus, right? <laughs> and it kind of shows you what what happens if you take the tragedy of death, you know, out of the equation. And Anyway, so yeah, it, it functions. It has a logic within the text that that these beings, um, you know, fulfill a necessary purpose. Actually, now that I mentioned, you know, the gods in Homer, um, so the gods in Homer were a problem for like early Christian readers, <laughs> or, or Christian readers generally, you know, until the point where where Homer was kind of domesticated as quote literature, and you didn't have to worry about the gods too much mm -hmm. as a kind of problem. But I imagine that you know dragons especially in their associations with demons and devils and so forth, that, that your volume has many stories that point that out. This must have been disconcerting to Christian readers uh, in, in, in some ways. So how, how did sort of medieval Christian society deal with this aspect of the problem? Well, they, I mean, the dragon becomes, we have to remember that the dragon of the ancient world is really a serpent. Um, we don't see winged dragons, I mean, truly winged dragons until the early, the early medieval period and mainly in Scandinavia, um, mm. although they they spread. There's there's we see them in, in Arabic literature, too, by the Middle Ages. But the but in the in the New Testament period, um, as Christians are reading the Hebrew scriptures, especially reading the book of Genesis, the um, the elision between the serpent of the Garden of Eden and and dragons in general is pretty is pretty direct and pretty strong. Um, Christian iconographers have a heck of a time trying to allied the dragon serpent devil amalgam. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's some there's some interesting articles on the iconography of the presentation of the, or the representation of the devil in the Garden of Eden, which sometimes has him as a true serpent, and sometimes has him as a serpent with a human head, and sometimes has him as a serpent with little legs and whatnot. So this, as they're trying to work this out, who this is, but but in the Christian tradition, they very very quickly uh, alighted the serpent of the Garden of Eden with the devil, obviously, and um, uh, and with the dragon. Um, who then, in the medieval iconographic tradition and some of the hagiographic traditions, simply embodies the you know appears in the story as a monster, but embodies the devil and who the devil is. 
uh, the, the, only to be vanquished by the saint in question. And George is obviously the most famous of those saints. Right. Uh, so Marjorie upstairs has started practicing her piano. Good for her. <laughs> there's, yeah, no, there's, a, there's a grand piano literally six feet or whatever above my head. And it's kind of, I don't know. Um, but pretty soon she's going to start pounding away on it and everyone will hear it. So that's okay. We'll wrap up. <laughs> we can, yeah, we're, this is a good place to wrap it up. Um, any final thoughts or like, what's the next volume? The Penguin Book of Demons right. is the next one. Um, no lack Penguin of was very interested in a book about, uh, which I pitched as a kind of history of invisible companions. And they said, no, we really want evil ones. <laughs> <laughs> so we moved very quickly from the kind of, yes. um, you know, uh, intermediary spirits of the ancient world um, to, um, you know, uh, the fall of Satan and the angels and into the Christian demonic tradition. <laughs> so, um, and then hopefully a coda on Philip Pullman's daimones in the... <laughs> oh, boy, in, um, I'm just... His I'm just thinking of if if my editors made that a habit of asking me every time I propose a volume to them. Yes, but can it be evil? Yeah, that's right. That's it. Can it be evil? No, they really <laughs> specific. And I made and there's no end of it. This one, the penguin, the penguin, it's under contract. It's in the works right now. The manuscript will be done in December. Um, but this one again ranges incredibly widely from the ancient world to ancient Judaism, really. Um, uh, all the way up to stories of the cannibalistic Wendigo in the Canadian North right. um, and Ode to My Homeland. All right. And, uh, uh, so, and there will be stops in Byzantium along the way and other places too. Yes, no lack of demons. <laughs> uh, so the the book is, it's the Penguin Book of Dragons. Uh, Scott, thank you so much for inviting me to participate in it and also for oh, coming yes. on to the podcast. Thank you. Right, thank you so care. very much for inviting me today and how wonderful. And, uh, and thanks so much, Andy. I'll see you at Fordham in a couple months then. I can't wait. <laughs> All right. Take care. All right. Take care.